1: This is Brave Little State. I'm Myra Flynn.
2: And I'm Lexi Krupp. Perched on a hill down the street from the library in Windsor is a big yellow house. It's old, really old. These days, it looks a little worse for wear. When it was built, though, it was a grand mansion.
1: It's Georgian in its proportions because it's very heavy. You know, It makes a very commanding statement here on this slight rise
2: on the hill. Judy Hayward has spent a lot of time with this building. She's an architectural historian, and the organization she runs, Historic Windsor, now owns the property. Originally, the house was built for a well-to-do lawyer named Stephen Jacob. This guy was a big deal. He served in just about every political position you can think of. Selectman, lister, justice of the peace, moderator, county judge. George Washington appointed him as a federal attorney. Later, he sat on the state Supreme Court.
1: He was a legislator. He, was, um, he served in the Revolutionary War. And I think maybe his biggest political accomplishment was that he meted out the boundary between New York and Vermont.
2: Stephen Jacob married and had six kids. But he and his family were not the only people living in that big house. There was also a woman named Dinah. Only, Dinah didn't choose to live in Windsor. Stephen purchased her when she was about 30 years old. That was in 1783. By that time, adult slavery was illegal in Vermont. The fact that Stephen Jacob was a slaveholder, though, it wasn't a secret.
3: I mean, everyone knows Jacob owned. uh, If you lived in Windsor between 1785 and 1800, you know that he had slaves, right? And he's a respectable guy. Everybody knows who Jacob was, right? You couldn't move to Windsor and not know him.
2: Professor Harvey Amani-Whitfield spoke about this at a Burlington bookstore in 2014. He's a historian, now working at the University of Calgary. He spent years tracking down evidence of slavery in early Vermont. He wrote a whole book on it. And he says what happened to Dinah ends up being well-known because there was a court case about her. It's not a heartwarming story.
3: This is not a court case of it's wrong that he owned a slave. It's about money. It's about cost.
2: Here's what happened. Stephen Jacob allegedly kicked Dinah out of the house after almost 20 years. She'd gone blind and became too sick to work for him. Other folks in town ended up taking care of her, and the town sued Stephen Jacob because they wanted to be reimbursed for Dinah's care. The kicker here is that the court threw out the case, so Stephen Jacob didn't have to pay anything. In 1802, the court said he cannot be responsible for the expenses of caring for Dinah because slavery does not exist in Vermont. Except it did.
1: Welcome to Brave Little State, I'm Myra Flynn. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience. Today, we're answering a question from Peter Lingella of Moortown. It's a question that leads reporter Lexi Krupp to answers steeped in legacy and profit.
0: Vermont abolished slavery at its founding, but how did we benefit from it and its aftereffects like sharecropping by way of goods and services?
1: While Vermont did abolish most forms of slavery, many systems and institutions continued to profit from it.
4: You cannot engage in the economy in this time period without engaging with slavery.
5: I think there's hardly any corporation you can look at that doesn't have connections
6: to slavery or the neo-slavery of after the Civil War. There's a whole narrative saying that it's the past and you should just, like, get over it.
1: We have support from Vermont Public Sustaining Members. Welcome.
5: Thanks to VITA for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, VITA has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com.
2: Vermonters love to say that we were the first state to abolish slavery, way back in 1777 even though the history is more complicated than that. Dozens, if not hundreds, of powerful white families enslaved black people in Vermont through the mid-1800s, sold them out of state, or had servants and laborers who were slaves in all but name. I say that because at this time, slavery was often not referred to as slavery, which can make historical research challenging. But there are some pretty famous Vermonters who are almost certainly slaveholders, like the settlers of Sheldon and Townsend. Ethan Allen had two black servants who worked on his farm. It's not clear if they were enslaved or not, but he did use slave labor in Connecticut. And it is clear that Ethan Allen's daughter, Lucy Caroline Hitchcock, was a slaveholder.
3: So she came back up to Burlington in the 1830s, and she had two slaves, like openly was owning
2: two slaves in Burlington and had them for many years. That's Harvey Amani Whitfield again. He says the two people Lucy enslaved were Lavinia and Francis Parker, a mother and her 12-year-old son. It wasn't until six years after they moved to Burlington that Lavinia's husband was able to pay for his family's freedom. Despite all this, it's not like all black people in early Vermont were enslaved. Most were free, even if they had to claim freedom for themselves like a man named Pompey Brackey. In 1779, he sued the person who held him as a slave, and the court sided in Pompey's favor.
3: So they award Pompey Brackey 412 pounds. It's like an astronomical amount of money to give to a former slave. I mean, it's like, that's a lot of money to give to anybody.
2: 412 pounds would be worth about $90,000 today. So as a black person in early Vermont, you might have access to certain freedoms not found in many other states. You could legally take a white person to court, own property, vote, even run for office. But the reality was not so straightforward.
3: At the very same time, if you were a black person, you might see your son or daughter kidnapped and sold outside of the state. You yourself could be kidnapped and re-enslaved. You yourself could still be a slave despite the 1777 Constitution. So you have all these different things going on in one place.
2: The other thing to know about this time in Vermont is that the economic impact of slavery was everywhere. And that's what our question asker Peter wanted to better understand, specifically how Vermont institutions and municipalities profited from slavery and sharecropping.
0: And so I'd love to pose this question and see if Brave Little State you know, could help us uncover some of it and learn from it.
2: Peter is a school librarian in Hinesburg and an adjunct professor at Northern Vermont University and UVM. And this question comes from his experience growing up in Manchester, New Hampshire, and what he was taught about his hometown.
0: At one time in the 19th and, and going into the early 20th century, Manchester was had, had the largest set of textile mills in the entire world. And the textile that was being brought in there to be turned into products was cotton.
2: As a kid, he remembers learning everything you could think of about these mills. How they were set up, the immigrants working there, what they were making.
0: So we were taught all these things. We were never taught about where the cotton came from.
2: And he thought, maybe Vermont has a similar story. Former mill towns manufacturing cotton picked by enslaved people, then sharecroppers. Or something like it. Peter submitted his question in 2020. That was before a big political campaign in Vermont gained steam.
6: The Vermont Racial Justice Alliance and Vermont Interfaith Action have launched a campaign educating Vermonters about Prop 2. It changes old language that provided-
2: It would amend what the state constitution says about slavery and indentured servitude. Because it turns out our Constitution did not fully abolish slavery back in 1777. And those loopholes are still on the books. Basically, the Constitution said that people ought not
5: to enslave people after the age of 21 for men and women.
2: Elise Gayet is a historian, author, and educator who studied Black history in Vermont for decades.
5: It was 18 for women, but then a few years later they changed it to 21 for both. So up until your age of majority, you could be enslaved
2: in this state. Fast forward to today, the state house recently passed new language that would amend our Constitution to prohibit slavery and indentured servitude in any form. Vermonters will be able to vote on whether to ratify the amendment on Election Day in November. When the Constitution was written, this language was not just semantics. We can see evidence of child slavery in census records through the 1800s. There were some pretty young kids who were
5: the only black person in the household, so were obviously um, serving the
2: white household. Some of those kids were as young as seven or eight. They're labeled as servants in the census. In other ways, though, slavery, and later sharecropping and convict leasing, had a lot of economic benefits because it produced all these cheap goods.
4: It's a weird thing because everybody benefits from it, by the way. Some benefits significantly more, right, but everybody benefits from it. And that's that's every, free black people, white people, right? everybody benefits from this because it, it does create a kind of economic
2: growth. Jared Ross Hardesty is a history professor at Western Washington University, where he studies labor and slavery in colonial America. And he says if you went up to most white people in Vermont and across New England in the early 1800s and ask, are you opposed to slavery, they'd probably say yes.
4: They're not abolitionists. Uh, They certainly don't believe in racial equality. But they do see slavery as sort of anathema to their living in a republic.
2: But if you ask whether they're willing to give up their cheap cotton clothing to oppose slavery, they might hesitate.
4: If you have to give up coffee, if you have to give up sugar, right, then you're going to start seeing a a wider range, a more kind of complicated answer to that question.
2: And it's not just goods directly produced by slave labor and later sharecropping that are cheaper. Foreign imports and other American-made products are too. Jared says farming tools are a good example, things like shovels and pickaxes.
4: So think of like the Ames Tool Company uh, based out of Boston. The reason that Ames is able to make enough money to mass-produce tools is that they have a guaranteed market in the South. So that allows a company like, say, Ames to massively sort of subsidize their production. Uh, It's a source of capital that allows them to expand production, which means then, say, farmers in Vermont can also buy those cheap tools.
2: Slavery also benefited Vermonters who were selling goods, like farmers raising livestock or growing crops, who might sell their wares to markets in Boston.
4: And it's gonna be exported. Well, where's it being exported to? Well, it's going to the West Indies. You know, it's, it's going to the South. Um, and, and who's it feeding once it gets there? It's, it's feeding enslaved peoples.
2: And there was another product coming out of Vermont that profited from slavery and sharecropping, cotton cloth. Just like in other parts of New England, textile mills sprang up all around Vermont, where they employed hundreds of people by the early 1900s. So,
5: yeah, here you go. Bennington, North Pownal, Brattleboro. I mean, there were tons of these little mills everywhere.
2: That's Miriam Block at the Heritage Winooski Mill Museum. She's the director there. And she said while the museum is housed in a building that historically produced wool, just across the Winooski River, the Chase Mill manufactured cotton.
5: And we have a little bit of a display out here as well. But um,
2: That wasn't the only cotton mill in Burlington. There was also a factory called the Chase Queen Bell. City Cotton Mill along the railroad. It was a major employer, with more than 600 workers at its peak. They offered childcare and housing in homes the factory built in the lakeside neighborhood of Burlington's South End. Elsewhere in Vermont, cotton mills were part of the landscape since the early 1800s. Miriam read from a book of old drawings of mill machinery.
5: The looms made the Middlebury cotton mill the largest in the state. The 1820 census listed 11 manufacturers of cotton yarn and our cloth in Vermont.
2: The Vermont State Prison also had over 50 power looms at the time. A historian told me it's possible some of these mills produced something called Negro cloth, fabric used to clothe enslaved people. But we don't have direct evidence of that here in Vermont. For all these mills, though, it's more than likely the cotton was grown by slave labor before the Civil War and sharecroppers after. Cheap labor that created cheap raw goods and generated more profits for factories.
1: When we come back, we'll hear about some familiar Vermont institutions that profited from slavery and its after effects. Places beginning to reconcile with their past. That's right after this. Welcome back to Brave Little State. I'm Myra Flynn. Today, we're answering a question from Peter Langella from Moortown about America's first big business slavery. Peter wants to know how Vermont profited from our ugly history with enslaved people. Vermont Public's Lexi Krupp takes it from here.
2: The story of how the town of Castleton was settled goes something like this. Two white men arrived in the area in the late 1760s, quote, attended by a black man, most likely a slave. They cleared land, built a cabin, and felled trees. One of the white men left before winter to go back to his home in Connecticut. The two who stayed in Vermont had a hard time. Their guns broke, they couldn't fish because the river froze, they had to chase down deer on snowshoes. The black man's feet were badly frostbitten. That was the start of the town as we know it. A few years later, a group of white families arrived to live there for good, thanks in part to a black man's labor and suffering. Other places in Vermont benefited from the exploitation of Black people in less direct ways, like the Shelburne Museum. It was started by a woman named Electra Havemeyer-Webb. She grew up in New York City, surrounded by fine art. Her father was a major player in the sugar refining industry. He founded what later became known as Domino Sugar. Their family did not own enslaved people or plantations, but the sugar refining industry relied on slave labor, then a brutal system of sharecropping to harvest sugarcane. Elise Gayette, the Vermont historian, brought this up. So you can look at
5: direct money from the backs of enslaved people coming from the Caribbean up to Vermont through the Havemeyer-Webb family.
2: It's something the museum has been open about in recent years. They have a section on their website that, quote, acknowledges the complex and controversial history of the capital of its founder, which, quote, ultimately provided the resources that were central to the origin of the Shelburne Museum. And then there's the Rokeby Museum in Ferrisburg. It's a historic farm of the Robinson family, best known for their involvement in the Underground Railroad. It's interesting to note that they came from
5: Rhode Island. And that family enslaved large numbers of people in Rhode Island. So even that family of abolitionists, the money to buy the farm came from enslaved peoples.
2: Elise is also on Rokeby's board. And better understanding the origin of the family's wealth is something the museum is looking into right now. But you don't have to go so far back in history for examples of how folks in Vermont have profited from slavery and its after effects. Like, just a few weeks ago, there were these items for sale at a gun show at the Vermont State Fairgrounds in Rutland. Mia Schultz first learned about what was going on from a photo.
6: A person who was at the gun show saw them, took a picture, And then it found its way to me.
2: Mia is the director of the Rutland NAACP. She saw this photo in August. It shows a clear plastic bin filled with shackles and keys. In gold lettering, labels on the metal read things like Negro woman or child only and property of Georgetown County Plantation Police. We don't know if these things are authentic or not, but it doesn't matter. Some vendor was selling these shackles as souvenirs of slavery in the antebellum South. Technically, selling this racist paraphernalia is legal at the fairgrounds. And that's something Mia is trying to change. She sent out a letter on behalf of the Rutland NAACP calling on the Vermont State Fair to prohibit the sale of racist objects on their property.
6: To make sure that it explicitly says we are not going to stand for this type of sale of problematic racist hateful hateful ephemera collectibles whatever you want to call it that we're not going to do that here
2: she wrote quote it's important to learn about and recognize the horrors of the legacy of slavery so we must not perpetuate profiting from the relics it's not the first time something like this has happened A few years ago, the Rutland NAACP contacted the Vermont State Fair, which rents out the fairgrounds. That was after vendors sold Confederate flags there. Those same kind of flags surround Mia's neighborhood today.
6: There are four Confederate flags hanging off of the houses within a square mile of me. We are in the north. There is no pride to Confederate flags inherently connected to the Northern states. We were fighting against the Confederacy. And yet, why are there, were there flags around me other than to display a hatred towards a group of people or, or to display, just display hate? It's not pride. That's yeah. a fallacy.
2: Her letter from this summer goes on to say, one of the ways that we can move forward as a nation, a state, a city is to ensure that we are intentional about where the history of hate is displayed. In a public statement, the Vermont State Fair said they've been leasing the space to the gun show for over 10 years without incident, and they'll be updating their leasing contracts to include, quote, non discriminatory language. The gun show hasn't responded to requests for comment, and the Vermont State Fair has yet to respond to Mia. Meanwhile, in the city of Burlington, there's a whole task force asking the same thing as our question asker, Peter, about how Vermont profited from slavery.
3: I think there is tremendous value in understanding what Burlington's historical relationship with the institution of slavery is. I think there's huge value for us in knowing that history.
2: Pablo Bose is a geography professor at the University of Vermont, and he's a member of the Burlington Reparations Task Force. The group was set up by the city council in 2020, after the murder of George Floyd. Their task is to research how Burlington might have profited from slavery, and what the city can do for the descendants of enslaved people. That's as a way to address the harm the city caused. Right now, the task force is mostly done with their historical research— The reparations piece, though, is a different story.
3: We haven't looked at what reparations look like. We haven't looked at what reparations might be for a city like Burlington.
2: As of now, there's no timeline for when they might introduce proposals. These days, in front of Stephen Jacobs' old house in Windsor is a new green plaque. He went up this summer to remember Dinah, the woman he enslaved here for 17 years. It's one of the Vermont roadside historic markers, and if this is an example of what progress looks like, it's a little unsatisfying. We know next to nothing about the first 30 years of Dinah's life. What we know of her time in Vermont is about the hardships she faced. According to the marker, the small dignity she receives comes from a local death notice, because she's referred to by her name, not as Stephen Jacobs' slave. Judy Hayward with Historic Windsor read from the marker.
1: Although Dinah died in poverty, she was identified in a published obituary as a woman of color. The location of her grave is unknown.
2: The marker doesn't mention that there was another black person living in Stephen Jacobs' house. We can see that from census records, but we know nothing about who they were. There's a lot of ways to think about how a place like Windsor profited from the enslavement of people like Dinah. You can look at the racial wealth gap, all the money and assets that white people have compared to black people in the U.S. It's about 10 to 1. Or you can walk 100 feet from the house where Dinah lived and turn onto a road called Jacob Street.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the show, and thanks to Peter Langella for the great question. If you have a question about Vermont you want us to answer, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can sign up for the BLS newsletter, check out past episodes, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. If you liked what you heard today, we recommend our episode on Vermont's 19th century Black communities and our Mythbuster about the Underground Railroad in Vermont. Those are linked in today's show notes, along with a couple book recommendations for further reading. Special thanks to Kari Winter, Stephanie Seguino, Lindsay Varner, Rebecca Zitlow, and Thomas Denenberg. This episode was reported by Lexi Krepp and produced by me, Myra Flynn. I also did the mix and sound design, editing an additional production from the BLS team, Angela Evansy, Josh Crane, and me. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music— other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public. If you like our show, you can make a gift at bravelittlestate.org donate, or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Myra Flynn. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions.